Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 192 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining us for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I get to hang out with Kenny Richards, founder of Vermont-based Halyard Brewing Company. He's here to teach us about a centuries-old beverage that was deboozed because of prohibition and that he is determined to return to its rightful place in the fermented pantheon. That's right, we're going to be tasting and talking about alcoholic ginger beer. But before we start enjoying this delicious historical drink, I do have a quick announcement, which is this. It's time for the Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards, and I'm here to ask you to nominate the Modern Bar Cart Podcast for Best broadcast, podcast, or online video series. This year, the awards are very media-focused because the pandemic crippled bars and restaurants, and we're really pushing to make the list of finalists. We've upped our game substantially this past year, and by helping us to make the final cut for this award, you'll really expand our reach, which means bigger and better guests, cool new projects, and the same free weekly podcast you've come to know and love. There's only a few days left to nominate, so if you're hearing this, it means it's already crunch time. Head over to the show notes page for this episode and be sure to click the link to make a quick account with Tales of the Cocktail and submit your nomination. This is one of those quick, simple things to do that will have a huge impact on me and the rest of the Modern Bar Cart team, so please, please consider helping out. With that housekeeping done, let's get to the good stuff. I think it's time for you to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Sunset Storm. It's a custom riff on the Dark and Stormy made using Halyard Brewing Company ginger beer. To make it, you'll need one ounce of dark rum. Halyard recommends Mount Gay Black Barrel. Three quarters of an ounce of Aperol. Four ounces of Volcano Juice Ginger Beer Shandy. One ounce orange juice, one half ounce lemon juice, and five to six dashes of Angostura bitters. In a cocktail shaker with ice, combine the rum, Aperol, and citrus juices. Shake vigorously until the ingredients are well chilled. Strain into a Collins glass with ice and top up with about four ounces of the Volcano Juice Ginger Beer Shandy. Garnish this cocktail with several dashes of Angostura bitters, which create a stormy colored gradient as they gradually mix with the drink, and a lemon wheel, which emulates the setting sun. What I like about the Sunset Storm is that it shows off what Halyard Brewing Company's ginger beer can do when mixed with other sweeteners and acids. We talk at length later in the episode about just what creates these really complex sweetness and acid profiles, but suffice it to say that this drink is a shining example of how they all work together in the glass. So now that you've got yourself a nautical drink, let's sail away into the interview. In this wide-ranging conversation with entrepreneur and ginger beer philosopher Kenny Richards, some of the topics we discuss include... How Kenny left behind a career in academia to resurrect one of America's most beloved and yet also most forgotten drink categories. 
what it's like to scale a brewery from a few barrels to a much more ambitious craft operation, and what implications this has on ingredients, people, and process. We taste through four popular and very different expressions of Halyard's ginger beers, beginning with Nicole's Extra, followed by Volcano Juice, The Breeze, and Mountain Aid. We talk about the best ways to use alcoholic ginger beer in cocktails, and especially the numerous opportunities there are to innovate within the buck-slash-mule category. We discuss what it means to become, be, and remain authentic in the age of peak hazy IPAs, glitter beer, and hard seltzer. We cover why Vermonters are constantly stuffing beers in their pockets, the aesthetics of a perfect moonrise, what to drink with Enlightenment philosopher Baruch Spinoza, and much, much more. Kenny is exactly the kind of person we all hope is behind the helm at any craft operation. He's thoughtful, focused, and takes a deep craftsman-like pleasure in the flavors and products he creates and shares. I hope you'll pick up a pack of Halyard's Hard Ginger Beer next time you see it on the shelves near you. And if I don't say it enough during this interview, let me say it here. This stuff is the perfect drink for summer get-togethers. With that, please enjoy this fun conversation with the man who made it his mission to buck convention like a mule, Kenny Richards. Kenny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. So we're going to get to some amazing ginger beer tastings today. Not exactly what I thought I was going to be doing at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning, but what we're going to lean into it. But before we do, uh, just introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us who you are, what you do. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm really excited to be here and talk with you. It's a really great, really great podcast. My name is Kenny Richards. I'm the CEO and founder of Halyard Brewing Co. Uh, we make hard ginger beer. You know, just to kind of introduce myself and talk about where I'm from and how I got into this, uh, it's not the most direct story <laughs> for folks, although not outside of the normal. You know, I've lived a lot of lives before entering the craft beverage industry. Um, I worked as a chef, professional archaeologist, bartender, farmer, and for a long stint, about eight years uh, as an academic and, you know, completing my graduate studies in religion and anthropology. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're digging in the dirt a lot then, archaeology and farming. Yeah, I did. But then I, I totally pivoted. And after doing this really interesting ethnobotany field school in the Amazon for a few months, I decided to study religion um, and uh, went to CU for my master's and then went to UNC Chapel Hill for my PhD. And, you know, it's interesting as a total aside, uh, there's a there's a bunch of us with like religion and philosophy degrees in Vermont that have breweries. Um, the list is kind of long, <laughs> so anywhere from like Zero Gravity to Hill Farmstead to Shaxbury to um, Havoc Mead. So we have this like little cabal of philosophers and religious studies people here in Vermont. Uh, hmm. But while I was working on my PhD, I uh, doing some American history, some early American history stuff. I, I came across uh, this mention of hard ginger beer, and I was really fascinated. And I'm, I'm and I'm kind of the person who's always making something, right? Like from sourdough to cured meats to scobies, right? And I was like, oh, this would be a really fun project to try to like reinvent or rediscover what hard ginger beer tastes like. And, you know, interestingly, there's, I'm sure as a lot of uh, your listeners know, there's a ton of information on the web about how to make, how to do craft beer at home and how to homebrew and how to make cider, but there's really not much out there all about hard ginger beer. So it's really this invention and discovery process that, you know, at, at one point, I think when my wife finally said enough, I had like taken everything out of our fridge and converted it into like a bright tank and things bubbling all over the house. And she's like, we need to feed our family, you know? <laughs> and, 
and eventually came up with a recipe that I, I really loved and a process that I really loved. You know, simultaneously, I was becoming really increasingly disenfranchised from the academic career path in the humanities. So my wife, who was from Vermont, and you know, we both decided to jump ship and left my PhD program after completing my dissertation comps and um, you know my, my exams and kind of in that last stage. So it's a pretty big move for us. She's from Vermont. She's a dance artist. She has her MFA. Um, we both kind of decided to move here to raise our family. We've got two small kids and start businesses. I didn't really know anything about running a business, much less a production brewery. <laughs> so not surprisingly, I couldn't really find anyone to, to invest in me to not only start a brewery in an almost unknown category, but to revive a product that nobody was drinking. Fortunately, I, I found a small nano brewery in South Burlington, which I leased and created a space for me to, through the help of a lot of people in the industry here and a lot of trial and error and a lot of, you know, successes, but also failures um, to build a brewery and revive this forgotten product. You know, now, five years later, we're distributed in 10 states. We're sold in stores like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and Publix and Hannaford. And, you know, we're we're really working to carve out our niche as the American craft ginger beer. Yeah, it's an exciting story. I can relate to the uh, leaving the uh, humanities for pastors that are less depressing sometimes. I, <laughs> <laughs> I was getting paid better as a, as somebody who is teaching poetry courses on like some sort of fellowship to complete my MFA than the salary they offered me once I then got that degree. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's really that was hard. The come to Jesus moment for me. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. It's funny how many of us uh, end up in the industry as well. Mm -hmm. I think there's some, yeah. there, I, I would love to know more. Like I, there's some connection between the amount of alcohol that monks drank and produced and the amount of us who have like left the humanities and find ourselves in the industry, <laughs> maybe correlation. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, well, so a couple things I, I want to talk about before we crack into our first tasting, you know, one, most people think of ginger beer, of course, as a soda product, as something with a little bit of sugar, a decent amount of carbonation, that good pop of ginger. Uh, we often encounter it in the cold case next to things like kombucha, things like ginger ale, things like, you know, other, you know, sort of, uh, we might say health adjacent sodas and that, you know, ginger beer has the, the some, some decent like gut benefits. Um, but the hard aspect of it, I think, is something that most people initially would view as a non sequitur because when we think of cocktails that incorporate ginger beer, well, you're getting the alcohol from elsewhere. So I, I guess I was hoping you could back us into this by talking a little bit about some of the historical precedents for the product that you're making that you encountered while doing your research, and maybe that will help kind of ease us into this tasting. Yeah, thanks. I, I think it's a really fascinating history. I, if you ever sat down and wondered, like, why is ginger beer called ginger beer? Or why is ginger ale called ginger ale? Like, why is that word there? And it, it turns out that there was a time when all ginger ale was alcoholic, right? It was, it was first brewed during the colonial spice trade, right, by the English. And you find it as a predominant beverage throughout the English colonies. And a really interesting example of the way foods moved around the world at the time, um, as well as colonial period uh, fermentation techniques and the amount of alcohol that was being consumed during that time period, which is mind-boggling. Mind 
Um, I think I remember, this is totally an aside, but I think I remember in um, some research that the average American person in the like mid 18th century would drink the equivalent of around 12 shots, you know, 12 two ounce pours a day, uh, a day. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like it was a regular, like you had some with breakfast, you had some lunch, you had some dinner, then you'd go to the, the tavern. So, so ginger beer, you know, you got cane sugar coming out of the Caribbean, you got ginger, you know, originally coming from Southeast Asia, but also being cultivated elsewhere in warm climates. Um, and the combination of those with water to produce this really mildly alcoholic beverage um, that became really, really popular throughout the colonies, but um, especially in the U.S. up until Prohibition. You know, where else do you see it outside of the U.S., right? Like you see it in Jamaica, Australia, Canada, right? And, and in these places, including the U.K., who don't have the history of Prohibition to shut it down, um, it, it still survives as, an, as a viable category with a lot of brands who, who work in that space. Um, but in the U.S., Prohibition... Uh, we're still recovering it, right? It's, it's, we're still recovering from this, we're st <laughs> from this period of time in our history, but it totally put a stop to the alcoholic production of, of hard ginger beer. And but it was such a popular beverage, and that with the invention of carbonation techniques, you eventually see um, it it return and thrive as a soda. Mm, that makes sense to me because it. So if, if we think about how these things must have naturally unfolded, the first affordance that ginger has is that is as a root crop, it is quasi stable for transport, perhaps even more stable than some citrus might have been at the time. And so it makes sense that ginger would have spread as a fairly popular and, you know, due to the, I'm imagining relatively low loss rates, you're probably going to be able to afford ginger perhaps better than you would be able to afford other flavoring agents at the time. So it makes sense that that would be something that people gravitated to as a, as a flavorant for some of the beverages that they were making. Of course, other beverages at this time, switchels, what happens if you leave a switchel out too long? Well, it's going to ferment. Event, like anything that contains a decent amount of sugar and is exposed to yeast and the microbiome that's just floating in the air all around us, it's going to start fermenting. So I, I can see why that this, this naturally would have occurred. And then uh, I've also been spending a decent amount of time like thinking about the late 1800s. And in some of the reading that I've done recently, just like carbonation was just so revolutionary. I don't think that people really appreciate how the ability to force carbonate things really opened up people's eyes to different beverage applications. So I could see why that this would have, especially in the 40 years approaching prohibition have been such an exciting product for people. People would have gone bananas over it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would love to dig into the history of forced carbonation, right? Like, uh, and, and where did that really start to, to kick off with people in the soda tradition and, and just the hard waters, right? Especially in the, mm -hmm. in the cocktail world. But yeah, and, and look, it's as a beverage, right? I, I have some really fun, like I have some history, but I also have some fun, just like anecdotal stuff about it too, right? You know, a friend of mine um, and a beer historian here in Vermont, um, Adam Krakowski, you know, he has shown me ginger beer recipes that he's uncovered doing historical research in, in archives that date back to the mid 18th century in Vermont, right? For hard ginger beer, really fascinating. Um, so we know it was being brewed back then. We know that he's also told me that there were um, two public production for ginger beer breweries in Vermont prior to prohibition that were both shut down. Um, 
as far as the like material history of ginger beer, you've probably seen like little clay crocks that used to be served in. So if you Google just like ginger beer, uh, alcoholic ginger beer in you know, 19th century or something, you'll get these images of these little clay crocks. Um, there's one in the Titanic Museum, right? Because it, they, they, they found one when excavating the Titanic. Um, at a beer tasting, I, I met this older man once who told me that uh, you know, he grew up Amish and that his grandfather used to ferment ginger beer in their basement and used to like sneak them down and, and pour some for him. Um, and so there's this kind of like underground history of it. And it, that can still continued on in some places, although pretty quietly. Uh, and then outside of you know New England here or the, or, or the U.S., a good friend of my father's, Victor, uh, he's from Jamaica, and he used to tell me that his mother, growing up in Jamaica, his mother used to take a big bowl, put it on the table, with a bunch of macerated fresh ginger, sugar, and water, and just sort of let it open ferment for a few days, right? Then whenever she thought it tasted right, she would take an entire bottle of rum and just dump it into it. Right, and that's how they got their like ginger beer beverage. And I'm kind of assuming the rum helped like stall the fermentation and stabilize it, make it a little healthier. And then you just put it in jars and throw it in the fridge. And um, sounds amazing to me. <laughs> uh, so there yeah, are there ways. Are, that, uh, yeah. There are a lot of in the Caribbean tradition with uh, with a lot of uh, some of the the syrups and and like tiki, also kind of like pre-tiki and tiki adjacent mixers you'll see you'll see ginger incorporated quite a bit so so yeah um, for sure so it has this really interesting history that you know and where i'm fascinated by it is that it's it's really been forgotten and especially as a production process it's been forgotten um and you know when i look back to the recipes that my friend adam has showed me i can't i can't use these recipes right they're not they're not designed for for modern production and some of them involve ingredients that you can't even use today um as well uh, and so the process of reinventing, reinventing it um, and reviving it has been really fun. It's been challenging, right? Because it's it's like, well, what do I what do I think it should taste like? What um where do I want it to taste like? Where do I set the bar as being one of the the first um, and one of the largest ginger beer U.S. ginger beer breweries? I get to be, and I kind of have the responsibility of being like, this is what I think hard ginger beer should taste like. Um, and it's fun. It's daunting, right? But it's but it's fun. It, uh, and, and some of the things that for me are really important is, is, and we can get into this in the tasting, but like it, it's a fermented product. So it's not going to be cloyingly sweet like one of the sodas, right? It's, it's the, the, when I make ginger beer, I use evaporated cane sugar, molasses, fresh ginger and water, and we brew it and we pitch yeast on it, right? Um, the sugars are what's the, there's a little bit of fermentables from the ginger, but it's mostly coming from the cane sugar and molasses. And, um, and most of that sugar, the sugar is mostly gone, right? And so our ginger beers, you know, like the Nicole's actually the first one we're going to sample is only five grams of sugar, right? Where like a soda is going to have 30 to 40 grams of sugar in a 12 ounce serving. And that's drastically different. It means it performs differently in cocktails. It means it tastes differently. It means it, you know, it, it's a wholly different product. Plus you add all the characteristics that come from fermentation. Um, you get a pretty different product. Yeah, I mean... One of the things that most people would assume would be that like, all right, I'm going to make an alcoholic ginger beer. Great. I've made an alcoholic ginger beer. We're done. Uh, <laughs> but, but you've, you've, you've sort of if, if continued to evolve your offerings so that not only are you playing around with 
other flavors, but you've got you've got a sort of a range of ABVs here. What do we, we've got all the way from I think four and a half to six point one? Yeah, six percent. Yeah, and we've actually brewed some even higher up to eight percent. Um, I mean, like we can take you know cane sugar molasses and ginger, and we can create a wide variety of ginger beers from it, right? Um, we've brewed dark ginger beers before. We've brewed like really light effervescent. We've we've brewed. Um, you know, kind of these really wonderful amber rich ones, crazy, crazy spicy ones. Uh, ones that um, we brew on a smaller scale to experiment before we put them on the market. Uh, but yeah, it, it provides an incredible amount of space to play in from a production side, which also keeps us and our brew, like my, you know, our brewing team happy, right? Because you get to reinvent. It's not just doing the same thing every day. Yeah. Uh, well, why don't you take us through the, the first tasting and uh, I guess we'll go from there. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so the first one I want to sample is our Nicole's Extra Ginger Beer. It is a Caribbean style ginger beer, 6%. It's dry, has a nice little ginger bite. Um, it's brewed with nutmeg, capsicum, a fair amount of ginger. Uh, it's golden in color. Can confirm, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, it's um nosing it right now. Not like a ginger beer that I would expect to get out of a soda case, you know, like it's it's a distinctly different it's the the ginger beer that I'm thinking of that I would just grab and you know and and down on a hot day. It, it's almost like got a, a peppery smell. This it does kind of sm- uh smell like nosing a beer, but I'm definitely getting some of those molasses notes as well. Mm. it's kind of surprising to be honest. Like I, I came into this with zero expectations and I'm honestly surprised by the complexity of just the nose, uh, which I imagine is, is, is the yeast that, that we're going to talk a little bit more about. And, Oh wow. You're not kidding. It is super dry. Yeah. There's only five grams of sugar in the whole 12 ounce. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's it reminds me, honestly, uh, I think the closest experience that I can describe would be like a dry mead because there are a few dry meads that I've had. Uh, Charm City Mead Works has has one or two um, that are kind of in this dimension. But then on top of the sort of sugar and flavor profile, you add the chemisthesis. You get the, the, the back of the tongue and kind of like warmth in the throat from the ginger here. And I wouldn't say like... Honestly, I would say the ginger flavor in a lot of those sodas is more intense because it's playing against all that sugar. Yeah, that's right. Sugar sugar can act as a vehicle for a lot of uh, what people think of when they think of ginger flavor, which is a like candy ginger kind of like base note, right? I'm also really I'm, I'm really trying to bring out fresh ginger, which is more of like a heat, more of like a, a higher note. That that little bit of base notes in there, but um, I don't want to bring this like super sugary bomb, I want to try to create something that I think is first within a craft tradition, but also I just, I don't really like sweet things as a, as a person who drinks, you know, as a drinker. So like, or in my beverages, I should say. And so I want to something that's dry. I think it, I think dryness requires more complexity, more care in a product. Um, mm-hmm. And it also makes it a little easier to like, you can feel good about it too. <laughs> so yeah. 
and it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like desserty. It doesn't feel like a guilty pleasure. It feels like a simple pleasure. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks. And uh, a, a couple follow ups here. One, who is Nicole, and why is this ginger beer extra? <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, Nicole's my wife, and when I started Halyard, the first two brews I actually put on the market were the true ginger beer, which is this like lightly hopped ginger beer, which we don't we don't do anymore. And then the Wayward, which is an amber ginger beer brewed with molasses and clove and vanilla, which is like 7.8%. We don't package it in cans. It's it's um, it takes a, sh- a lot of ginger to um, to make it, so we just can't put it on the market at a price that people are going to buy. But it's really delicious. Um, we were getting to a point where she was like, you know, I want. It just kind of just describing me the ginger beer she wanted. And so, as an artist, she um, she was working. We we did a. a a collaborative fundraiser with this local um, nonprofit that supports dance arts in Vermont. And we brewed the beer for this event at this like really cool little local restaurant, brewed it for her and for her art and this, and you know, kind of a, an homage to our relationship. And it's called Nicole's Extra because it's like, it's, she's going to have an extra one, right? It's just like, there's extra ginger in it, but it's also this like, kind of like play because she, she really likes them. She'll, she'll usually have an extra one. Oh, I love it. I love it. And uh, so one of the things that we haven't covered in terms of the overall, like the big picture production processes is, are you juicing this ginger? Are you pitching it in as like, like diced or cause you know, we use ginger when we make our cocktail bitters. So, you know, when we do that, we just sort of, you know, dice it up and, and, and chuck it in the extraction vessel. Um, is this, is this a juiced product? Yeah. So we'll need to get you to sign an NDA real fast. <laughs> no. Um, just kidding. The, uh, yeah, we for for this for our our core brews that we're t- sampling today, we do use uh, ginger juice mm-hmm. um, in the fermentation process. Um, it is a Peruvian ginger that's organic and fair trade. Um, that uh, fortunately, uh, a friend of mine and a local um, food manufacturer uh, does for us. I started off juicing it ourselves, but we're at a point where it takes a lot of juice and a lot of ginger, and so. Um, it's cold pressed, which is really important, um, as you probably know from you know cocktail creation. If you if you juice something under, um, you know, grinding it up, it, it heats it up, and that can actually disrupt the intensity of flavor. And so, cold pressed juices for a lot of different types of um, things are going to juice are going to hold more complexity of flavor, hold more brightness and freshness. Um, and so, we use a cold pressed ginger juice in our brews. Yeah, the reason why I asked is because generally there is some sort of story about scaling, uh, and ginger is just—it's it's one of those products where it's like if you're going to use the juice, you're gonna—you're gonna encounter some uh, some growing pains along the way. So I kind of figured there was a story there, but yeah, um, totally. We we will do um, some of our spicier, like the wayward I was telling you about. We will make a uh, like a mash out of macerated ginger, and like a long steeping boiling process, uh, but it's mm-hmm. not scalable to what at our current production um, means just scalable to what we're doing right now right, uh, right. but juice is really amazing it's like it, there's this really crazy starch that comes in ginger juice too that when you kind of like scoop up the bottom it's like uh it's like corn starch and water but it's unique to ginger pretty neat not spicy yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's super spicy. i mean uh we have a wonderful ginger syrup that we sell on our e-commerce site um 
from Pratt Standard, and it's the same thing. Like it's it, that syrup; it just it settles out in the bottle, and it, it. I from a consumer standpoint, I'm sure it looks sketchy, you know, because <laughs> we're programmed to see separation as as a as a flaw, right? Unless it's in yeah. salad dressing, that separation is right. not supposed to occur. <laughs> but uh, it's when you shake that thing up, you're getting you're getting some serious spice, and uh, yeah, I mean. So we've got, so the, the Nicole's extra is, I think a, a perfect starter here, uh, because you know, it, it breaks you in, I would say in, in a very refreshing light effervescent way. But then the second one we have here is a little bit more intimidating based on the name. Um, it, it's called it's a misnomer. Yeah. People, people can get confused. So, so first of all, for our, for these products, I don't brew, none of them are so spicy you can't handle it, right? I wanted, I wanted to brew something that's really drinkable, that tastes like ginger, but that's not too crazy hot, too crazy spicy. Um, of the ones you're sampling today, the Nicole's Extra, the Nicole's Extra is actually the most um, gingery. The next one we're gonna try, the Volcano Juice is a funny story. It's back when I'm like the first year of business, I had the tap room. We only had a couple ginger beers on tap and I wanted to like provide more offerings for people, but weren't like expanding beyond those two lines yet. So I did what has been done for a long period of time and I made a shandy. I took ginger beer mm. and I poured lemonade in it and started serving to people and they totally loved it. And so the the volcano juice is is a a sort of light ginger beer that we brew. Um, and then we after it's finished fermenting, we blend in uh house made lemonade with it to bring that kind of like lemon and sweetness to the ginger to make this this light and what I like to describe is just a really crushable uh, day beverage, right? It really does strike like a like a shandy. It's um, you definitely get the lemon on the nose, and then you get. I it, it's funny in in the 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 tongue plays tricks on us sometimes, and <laughs> and thinking about this, like I I get almost a similar level of spice, but it's not the spice; it's that citric tang on the back of the tongue that that creates that little. Um, not a painful, but, but like a little, uh, you know, a chemesthetic sensation when you get that citric acid from the lemon juice in there. Uh, and so to me, it's like, even, even if it's maybe technically less spicy, it kind of, it, you know, it, it still asserts itself in a similar way as the Nicole's extra, but you're right. I mean, it's got, there's, if you're not paying attention, this is going to be, you know, your glass is going to be empty before you realize it. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Uh, and we, the reason we call it volcano juice is because the lemons we source for it uh, are grown on uh, Mount Etna in, in Sicily. So these like really fantastic lemons. It, we're actually using juice. We're not using concentrates. We're not using you know. It's, and and we get this really awesome, fantastic quality lemon juice uh, for the volcano juice. And it's like, well, you know, the, it grows on a volcano. Volcano juice kind of kind of rhymes, but also like flows in with this real island vibe of the beverage. Uh, so that's where the name comes from. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously Italy, the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean in general, you know, kind of famous for citrus. Uh, what, what are these, what are these lemons called? Is this is like a special type, like, like it's like the San Marzano tomato of lemons. Or something <laughs> yeah. Like that? yeah. You know, you're catching me. I don't know that the, like the name of the lemon itself, um, I can get back to you about that. We can put it in our notes. Yeah, but we'll, we'll look at. Yeah, we'll definitely put it in the show notes if we can find it. But yeah, that's uh, that's a that's a cool little story. Um, I imagine there's not too too many lemons that, that grow on Mount Etna, so that's a, <laughs> that's a great thing to be able to offer. So I have a question about 
uh, the facility itself. Is it, it? Do you just have a production facility and then you're putting these things straight on trucks and sending them to stores, or do you have a tasting room set up in Vermont where people can actually come and experience it? Yeah, so we have like a lot of uh, manufacturers who go from small to big really quickly. We use contract brewing to really to meet our growing demand. Um, and fortunately, we've been able to partner with some really great contract brewers to um, nearby to to get the product out in the market that we love. We also still have our brewery and tap room, um, but for our, our contract brewers, and it's really a, it's a relationship, right? We're present, we work with them. Um, it's not just like, here's your recipe, we'll talk to you in six months, right? It's a collaborative process. It's also about how I consider craft and the importance of craft making, right? But um, we work with Single Cut, uh, which is based out of New York. They have a, a really wonderful brewery uh, started in, in the city, and then they have another facility just a couple hours away from us here in Vermont over in Clifton Park, right across the New York border. Um, and then we are partnering uh, this year with Shaxbury Cider as well to create excess capacity. Uh, they're based out of Virgin's, um, another really great cider company. It has an awesome product. And um, so we're really fortunate to work with such uh, well-respected manufacturers to help bring our product to market. We still have our original two-barrel Nano Brewery that I founded it in, which is this relic, right, um, mm -hmm. where the tap room is and we, we do our experimental brews and we really kind of try to push the category at, at a two barrel cost, which is really way, really affordable way to fail <laughs> as opposed to like brewing large, large volumes of it. Uh, we've had the tap room closed since COVID. Uh, Vermont, we were really strict here in our COVID regulations and the tap room is really small. So it's, we just, it never worked to have it open which is a real bummer because we had a cocktail bar in there as well as a ginger beer brewery. So we had like seven or eight ginger beers on tap and then a rotating special cocktail list and then about 10 or 12 ginger beer cocktails that were always on. It was a really fun place to, to play and experiment. Yeah. So do you have plans to open it up again when things start to uh, to relax a little? Yep, absolutely. We're working on that. The state is, is uh, gradually opening its bars and restaurants. Currently, we have you know one of the highest vaccination rates in the country here, so it's um, people are feeling more comfortable going back out into the back out into the world. Um, so excited to get the bar open again and start inviting inviting people back in. Yeah, we'll put some pictures over on the show notes page. So if you uh, if you're in driving radius, or if you find yourself traveling to uh, to Vermont anytime in the near future, then uh, we'll give you something to look forward to uh, with that, hopefully. But what I wanted to transition to, and, and you can you can bring in uh, our our next two tastings, however you'd like to. But I, I wanted to talk about since we're we're mentioning cocktail bars here, I want to talk about use cases for alcoholic ginger beer because of course you know these look like beers they look like beers they look like seltzers they look like things that i would drink straight from the can if i wasn't sitting here nosing them in glasses uh, <laughs> but you know when we think of ginger beer in the cocktail world we think of the buck category we think of the mules um, the Moscow Mule, the Kentucky Mule. We think of the El Diablo cocktail, which is something that that you have on your brand materials, which I think is probably one of my favorite applications for a ginger beer in a cocktail format. Format, but when we think of these, it's basically you take a booze, you take a ginger beer, and you take a citrus, and somewhere in there, there's a sugar, whether that's from the ginger because the ginger beer you're using is so sugary, or you know, with the addition of some sort of fortifier. Um, but I mean, how do you think about your ginger beer when we start to approach it 
as a mixer with other, uh, you know, boozes and, and flavors? Yeah, that's a really great question. And one that I, I love to talk about, I love to experiment with, um, to see how it works and to open up the cocktail world, um, with Halyard and look at Halyard as a cocktail ingredient. You know, I, one of the, uh, one of the interesting things that when we, when we try to sell it into bars, sometimes a bartender will be like, but it's, it's already alcoholic. I don't want to make the drinks too boozy. And I'm like, come on, you're, you're putting booze on booze all day long. Right. So, but Aside from the alcoholic aspect of it aside, I, I think what's really fascinating from a cocktail perspective is that um, it's it's very different than sodas, right? As you've tasted, it's drier, you have yeast characteristics, it's a very different product and it's gonna make your cocktails very different. So it's not gonna like, it makes it like, to make a mule out of um, the Nicole's Extra, it's great, it's dry, it's bubbly, it, you know, put a nice, you know, half ounce of lime juice on it and it's still refreshing and delicious but it's not going to taste like the mule that they're used to um or a dark and stormy that's loaded with sugar right it's going to be a very different beverage it's still really yummy but it's different and so a lot of bartenders um when we you know out in the world for halyard but also at our bar we like to we don't like to warn people but like just so you know this isn't like the sugar bomb you're used to but it comes back to that like perfect little ratio that you get out of bucks right the, the spirit the citrus the ginger beer and the sweetener um you know, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding of the history is that uh, a horse's neck is ginger beer and citrus. It's called a horse's neck. It's a pre-prohibition mm -hmm. era beverage. And a buck, the idea was you put spirit into a horse's neck and it causes the horse to buck, right? So it's not like the deer with the antlers. It's like the actual act of bucking is where the name comes from. And on one hand, because it's such a good combo, you can do a ton with it, right? Um, and really kind of go back and explore some historical aspects of it that might be on your cocktail menu, but you might have totally forgotten about. Like, like some of my favorites are the Vertigo, which is um, ginger beer, Amaro Averna, and um, lemon juice, right? We use mm. the volcano juice in that, and it's uh, two ounces of Averna and one ounce of lemon juice. And, Mm. volcano juice and it's fantastic uh, Floradora which is gin lime um, and frambois and ginger beer right super yummy um, the Italian buck which I like to make uh, is ginger beer and you know some type of like bitter amaro or something I like uh, to use um, oh man <laughs> yes thank you <laughs> I uh and that's embarrassing, but that's what I love. You know, this piece of lemon juice on it, right? That like the bitter yeah. from the artichoke makes it really wonderful. Uh, so there's a lot that, that can be done there. There's also some other classics like the penicillin, which is really wonderful. Other ways that I like to use it in, in cocktails that I like to push the envelope on cocktail, you know, maybe not push the envelope, but like it's, I once had a bartender tell me that like ginger beer is like bacon. It's really good with everything. And, and so you can really, you can add it to a lot of beverages. I like to add it to various tiki's. So like throw um, some Nicole's extra on top of your next jungle bird, right? Or uh, some halyard on a, on, a, on a Mai Tai. It actually works really well. Um, and then there's some, some bartenders in the local area that I'm friends with who are doing some really fun things. Like my friend Emily, who has this really cool cocktail bar called Deli 126 in Burlington. Makes what she calls the industry mule that has fernet, chartreuse, lemon, simple, and ginger beer <laughs> in it, right? And it just, it really works. Uh, and, and, uh, and so there's a lot of ways that, you know, you can play with it. They recognize that it's not, you know, it's not that super sweet ginger beer that you're going to get from the soda, uh, but it does provide something unique and interesting that, 
for those of you who are going to really nerd out on like what would a historical cocktail look like, right? You can say, I got this, this cool thing called Howard and it's, and it's dry and it's fermented and it's going to provide a different aspect to a cocktail than what you're usually going to get yeah. out of soda. Yeah, I, I like that. And, and, you know, so if we think of the buck or the mule as something where the balance is achieved because there's a lot of sugar in the ginger beer, well, the logic would, like, if, if you just calm down and think about this for a second, it, it makes all the sense in the world. Okay, in a regular buck or a regular mule, most of the sugar is in the ginger beer. What happens when you take most of that sugar out of the ginger beer? The logic would sort of dictate that you need to, if you want to get that balance, the sugar now needs to come from somewhere else. And at least in a cocktail format, that opens the doors to other additives. We've mentioned so far, you know, chartreuse, chinar, Amaro Averna, like all of these things. You know, you, you mentioned a jungle bird. There's Campari. You were mentioning a Mai Tai. There's Orgeat. You know, um, there, there's a lot of everything that you described. There was another sweetener. And then it seems like the Halyard product is uniquely suited to bring in a couple of characteristics, obviously the ginger, but regular ginger beer does that as well. But here, you know, some of the more yeasty characteristics, um, you know, that's not something that you're going to find in a regular mule or buck format, you know? So I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity to play there, not only with the different opportunities to throw in cordials, uh, like the, the frambois you said, that's, you know, I, I, I could imagine, uh, creme de cassis being a, a popular, um, mixer with some of your products as well. Like there's just so much you can do with it. Like even just as I'm riffing in my own head right now, because this is so dry, I could see making a cure Royale out of it, you know, it, where this replaces the dry sparkling white wine. Is it going to be different? Yeah, it's going to be yeastier and depending on what you, or maybe I would just use the volcano juice and it would be pretty similar where the lemon notes are going to kind of mimic those lemon notes in champagne. So, um, you know, I, I get some, some really great just ideas thinking about what the opportunity is when there's less sugar in the ginger beer, as opposed to just assuming that in my normal buck or mule, the sugar is going to be brought by the ginger beer. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's very exciting to me. Yeah, I love that. That's a really awesome way to think about it, especially as you think about how you build your drinks, right? And oh, where are the elements and the components coming from? And wanting to build drinks that have ginger beer in them that aren't going to, you have to somehow compensate for the added sugar that's coming from the soda. So where do you build it? And and all of the variety that opens up for you without without serving your, you know, serving customers or, or making a, a drink at home that's just going to be a sugar bomb. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, lower sugar is, you know, probably for a lot of, actually, I was going to say for better or for worse, but almost definitely for better <laughs> a trend these days that, that is on the rise. So, so it seems like from an adoption standpoint, you're probably going to get more people who are automatically inclined to like this than you would have 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, but we can't underestimate the power of sweetness too, right? Like people, love sugar. I mean, the volcano juice is our bestseller and it's our sweetest, right? <laughs> so that's not just like, there's a little causation there going on. And, um, but balancing that. And I, I think that as consumers and people looking at health, health trends, but also where the, you know, where the industry is going and sweetness, we can, we can be mindful of the amount of sweeteners we're doing and recognize that sugar can be a crutch, right? Like, like fat can be a crutch in cooking. Sugar can be a crutch. And I think it takes a lot of care um, 
in your in your mixing and your production to to brew something and make something a little drier and and allow that and allow the ingredients you're using to really stand out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you are definitely more of like a, you have the gin distiller mentality. Like if you were to be placed on a spectrum of distillers, you would be, you would be like the gin guy because just like, just like, uh, I, I, I think of barrels in, in much the same way as I think of sugar and there's no, there's no surprise there, right? A, a charred barrel has lignans and vanillins and, and lots of sugars in that wood. And that's what permeates the spirit. And that's why, you know, we enjoy a, a really nice bourbon, but, uh, you know, I, I do think of barrels sometimes as a crutch in that I'm way more, way, way, way more interested in unaged distillates and especially botanical distillates because there's, that's, that's where you, you can't get away with anything there. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You're not going to have any sugar or barrel character to hide behind. I'm sure that most people who love barrel aged spirits will not agree with me. I'm, I'm sure that most people who make barrel aid spirits are, are going to protest a lot because <laughs> there is a lot of uh, art that goes on behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. Blending is, is, is fascinating, yeah. but at least for the purposes of our conversation here, I see a lot of commonalities between your project and the project of somebody who's trying to create a line of gins where all of the botanical notes are playing well together because there's just nothing really to hide behind. Yeah. Right. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like. You live in the Mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals. And you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country Provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages and also browse their growing seafood selection. As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Near Country Provisions is the real deal, and I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. Causes me as well, I mean, so often the, and any any good chef will tell you this, the food's not, whatever thing you cook for somebody is not ever gonna be better than the ingredients you put into it, right? Or it, it can't be worse than that, right? So like you're the better ingredients you put into something, the better at the end of the day, your product's gonna, you know, the food you make is gonna be. Um, you can do something very simple to a really amazing ingredient and have a really good product, right? And so at Hire, like I, um, we nerd out a lot on, on sourcing to make sure that we're using really quality ingredients, right? Like the sugar we use, it's not just white invert sugar, right? It's like evaporated cane sugar, it's minimally processed, uh, it's US grown. Um, and sugar has its own politics and its own world involved as well. That's a, probably for another whole entire podcast. Um, but, you know, we try to source in ways that are sustainable, right? Like we certainly, we're currently using Florida crystals, evaporated cane sugar, right? Really wonderful, um, you know, and we're trying to reduce environmental impact, but also getting a sugar that's going to carry richness and flavor from it as well. And then the ginger. I mean, ginger is fascinating. Ginger has a terroir, which I don't, I'm not sure you're aware of. So like ginger from different places all over the world has different, it, it brings different aspects. Peruvian ginger, which we use, 
really has this awesome balance between flavor and, and spice, which I love, you know, like some of the Chinese gingers might be crazy spicy or like Hawaiian ginger, which is like, I don't know, the, the, the best, I think the best ginger in the world is being grown in Hawaii is just such rich in flavor, um, beautiful in color. Um, it's also really expensive for, for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, or there's even ginger being grown in Vermont, but it's just young ginger, right? And I uh, guess it, it's too cold here to, to grow a perennial, some tropical plant, uh, but you can eat young ginger like a carrot. So it's just this really wonderful product and it brings a lot to the to the beverage as well. I, yeah, I like that about sourcing. I'm actually familiar. We use Peruvian ginger in our, our bitters as well. Um, so I'm, I'm familiar with that. I, it's, a, it's a lovely thing to work with. Uh, the, the, I sometimes find that the skin's a little bit thinner. Is that is that one of the characteristics? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and you get, a, and it has a, it has a high yield. It's really pretty in color. Um, there's a lot of aspects mm -hmm. to it that make it, you know, really ideal for a ginger beer brewing. Yeah, for sure. Um, so one of the things that as we were going back and forth on before the interview that you, you mentioned, you wanted to talk about, and maybe we can talk about it while tasting number three here, uh, is, is authenticity. And, uh, I figured I'd, I figured I'd just, throw that out there and let you run with it. Yeah, thanks. So it was sparked from a question you asked, uh, you know, when we were jamming before about ABV and the use of ingredients and flavoring. And it just, uh, the, the craft beer world and the beverage world right now is it's in a really interesting time, right? Seltzer madness has changed the game. Um, meanwhile, uh, craft breweries are lots and lots of, of breweries are trying to like stand out, right? There's so much out there. There's still what over 8,000 craft, craft beer breweries in the US. And then there's the RTD thing. There's all these canned cocktails coming to market. And with the proliferation of commodities and you have a, a race to stand out, right? And what's, you know, you get glitter beer and you get, I don't know, you, you get this like race for a gimmick just so you can make a sale. And then on the other hand, you have breweries who are like, no, nah, F that. We're just going to like stick to what we do. And we're going to brew really good beer. I'm going to make an amazing lager. We got this IPA that we really do really well. Like, and there's the whole entire, there's just so much fomenting and going on, right? And when I think of authenticity and I think of craft, right? When I think of authenticity and the question of like, well, what about your ingredients? What about your, your, your flavorings that you use? You know, what, what I hear I'm asking is like, are you a craft brewer? Are you, are you pursuing a craft? What is the care you bring to your to your production process? And take seltzer as an example. Like, um, seltzer, seltzer, it's new, which is totally fascinating, right? And look, hard seltzer is fermented invert sugar with some type of distilled, either chemically or actual flavor adjunct. And mm -hmm there's this question is, is there such a thing or is it possible to have craft seltzer? We don't know yet, right? That has yet to be determined. Um, and the behemoths out there who are doing it, you know, like, dare I say, like White Claws, it's great. I mean, it's just, it's White Claw, it's like its thing, right? And, mm -hmm. um, but is there space for the proliferation of it in a craft like there has been in cider or beer, right? Um, I don't, if it's just to see who has the next flavor hype, I don't think so. You know, the reason I bring that up, and the reason I, I kind of, and the same thing with like the the proliferation of, of items in craft beer is this this question of like, well, what's 
what's craft and what's authentic. And it's something that we struggle with as we try to build ourselves and scale. Um, and for me, craft comes down to really, really three things that for me that I like to make a stand on craft. But before I, I'd love to hear your thoughts too, Eric, on this. Um, but you know, I think back to a grad seminar I had where we were discussing authenticity. And, you know, I remember this professor of mine at, at Duke just being like, authenticity is performance. We create authenticity. We perform authenticity, right? Like think about those people out there who go to great lengths to just perform like, oh, we are the real thing, right? We are, we represent the real craft tradition of X or we are the, we are the most wild fermented or we are the, the truest New England IPA. Sure, right? It's a statement. You have to perform that authenticity. And I think where people get hung up, and this is like the philosopher in me coming out, where I think people get hung up is that they think that there is an ideal there, that like there's some platonic, oh, there is this thing called an IPA in the world that's held over all. And if we can only find that true, perfect thing, right? And look, where, where I stand on that is there's no there there, right? There's no like such thing as the, the true, perfect, ideal IPA or the true, perfect, ideal bourbon. We're all making, we're all inventing, we're all failing. We're all rediscovering generation after generation and going through the work of crafting what becomes authentic, right? As makers, as producers. But you know, that it doesn't leave me in some sort of like postmodern you know, conundrum, right? Where, oh, well, if there's no such thing, then it doesn't really matter. And we're just going to keep making glitter beer, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think it's incredibly important in this time of mass proliferation and just a lot of really great stuff's being made and a lot of really bad stuff's being made and it's just all kind of being dumped in the market and consumers are confused and manufacturers are confused and i think it is important to sort of like say well i, I think we do need to draw the line somewhere and we don't need to say that this is what authenticity means for all time or this is what craft means for all time but i think it is important to come back and say well like these are what we want or what i want craft to stand for that's interesting. I, I mean, yeah, I think to me, as you were as you were talking, the one I, I was I was trying to think in my mind about like, all right, what to me is authentic, or what what to me strikes me about someone who is doing something at a craft level where uh, maybe the capacity is not enough to get them into Whole Foods uh, across the country, but but there's something about the quality that, that really draws me to that product or that that company or that person. And for me, I mean, part of it is is slow. Like the, the one word that kept on coming back was slow. And I mean, it's definitely something that I've come across in speaking with craft distillers. I remember I can, I can literally hear my friend R.B. Wolfensberger describing his distilling process of his single malt vodka. And he's like, and we distill it slow and we take our time and I don't force it through the filter. I let it naturally filter through. And when people compliment my mouthfeel, I, I take a lot of pleasure in that because I know that that's directly tied to the way that I make this product. And so there's something about slow that affects process and product, but there's something about slow that is also antithetical to scale. And so I think that is one of the things that we see when somebody goes to scale. Like my favorite, <clears throat> my favorite beer, 
uh, actually my wedding beer and I, I'll be, I will call this company out because it, you know, it, it, it's fine. I think they used to be good. I think they're less good now, but it was victory, uh, victory out of, uh, out of Pennsylvania. And, and they had this uh, awesome pale ale, which is one of the only straight up pale ales that I ever really liked. I'm not, I'm not a big Sierra Nevada guy. Like I like an IPA more than I like a traditional pale ale. Uh, for some reason, I'm not quite sure I can even articulate it, but there was one called Summer Love, and it was this amazing pale ale that Victory made. It was my wedding beer. We got a couple of cases of it. We stuck it in coolers, and it was enjoyed at my wedding. And I remember a couple years later, it was one of those seasonal releases, and it came out. I was like, oh, it's out. Yeah, I'm going to go grab a six-pack. And I brought it back, and they had gotten bought out by some larger company since then, and I drank it, and I just dumped the other five bottles down the sink. Uh, and, and so there's, you know, there, there's something about scale that really puts you at risk for, you know, losing some things. And it, it doesn't surprise me that you're concerned by these things because you're in the midst of it right now. You're, you, I imagine have to grapple daily or weekly with, uh, decisions, uh, in that sphere. So it makes sense that you're, you're concerned about it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I love that because when we're talking about slowness, we're also talking about the attention to process that's so important in manufacturing. And as companies scale, there's often more and more pressure to make more money. And it's that pressure which causes reductions in the process, which causes ingredients to be lessened in their quality as, as margins are carved out, right? And I think that's one of the major things that happen and, and scaling that become really bad or hard for a company. It becomes harder and harder for them to achieve the same quality that they did at a, at a smaller level. So that really that, that focus on process is incredibly important, taking your time to brew something, but that's also the ingredients too, right? Like making sure that you continue to source the right ingredients there. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, for me, the, the last part that's so important about craft is a focus on people, right? I think that like that the people who are brewing the product, uh, you know, that that craft is inclusive, that it's, it's respected, that the, the makers are make fair wages, right? That the entire process of craft is not mechanized towards total max profit, but is, is, is maximized towards the best quality product and supporting the people that make it. You know, and I think about like what defines craft for me, it's like you said, it's just like this slow is a wonderful word. It's this emphasis on process and that includes ingredients. And it's also the emphasis on the people who make it. Um, and I think if we could, round up our wagons around that, I think we would have the grounds for a, a pretty good definition, right? Yeah. And I mean, if you, if you think about Europe, for example, you know, you go to France and every, every region is kind of, you know, chunked off, you know, protected from other regions. It has its, you know, it has its things that make it special. And part of what, you know, talking about slow, slow is time, time for those vines to grow, time for the terroir to develop. Uh, you know, there's no surprise that these wine regions year after year produce incredible things. It's because they were sort of designed that way and there were protections put in place. Uh, and here in the U.S., one of the things that people I don't think realize is how wide open our regulations are in many respect or how wide open our mindset is towards saying, eh, anything goes, you know, 
can you make California? Sure, you can make California champagne. It's not going to be even remotely similar to, you know, the, the champagne that comes out of the real champagne, but we're okay with it. It's fine. It's the U.S. We have different rules here. Um, and, and so I think some of, some of our eagerness to innovate, some of our eagerness to uh, scale is, is definitely antithetical to some of the things that we've been talking about when it comes to authenticity. And, and I, I do want to pull out just, just one other thing that, that strikes me about your products and your company in the authenticity realm is that, you know, you're referencing, you're referencing a product category that existed a hundred, 200, perhaps even 300 years ago. And, you know, you're very mindful of exactly what you're doing, not only to recreate, you know, what you think ginger beer should taste like, alcoholic ginger beer should taste like, but also to kind of open it up and introduce it to the modern palate. You know, there, there's the education aspect of things and the, you know, sort of making something that people are going to naturally gravitate to in today's market is also important because if nobody knows about it, you know, you can be as craft as you want, but you're not, you're not going to be a company if nobody buys it. Yeah, that's a great, that's a really great point. You know, like, I think we should sample the breeze on that point right now, because yes, the, exactly. the breeze, like, the, I can tell you one thing I'm pretty fairly certain on is that there weren't readily available dried hibiscus flowers and lime juice in colonial Vermont, right? <laughs> and so like, um, you know, the breeze is our hibiscus and lime ginger beer. It's four and a half percent alcohol. Uh, it's got a really beautiful color. Um, you get that, like, earthy floralness from the hibiscus and it hibiscus imparts its own sort of citrus i find like it's it's citrus-esque um it really is yeah and the lime mm. um brings up that like kind of islandy vibe to it adds a little more citrus to it and then a really mellow ginger finish on it just makes this super crushable delicious but you know surprisingly complex beverage wow yeah, I mean hibiscus. Sometimes I think of hibiscus as almost cheating because it's it's too good, and then it just gives that color. I mean, it's we we use hibiscus in our uh, in our lavender bitters. Actually, it's it's one of those one of those flavors that we have sort of in the background. Lavender is is lavender is a terrible product to work with from a, a flavor perspective because it smells wonderful, but it tastes like soap. So anybody who really wants to make a good lavender bitters needs to throw in some stuff that's going to uh, to be adjunct to that uh, that primary intense note. And hibiscus is just it's I think it's one of those flavors that year after year wins best supporting actor. It is it is just this it's lovely and and I think lime is smart too because what you're doing here and this is something I've been sort of interested in in the cocktail space very very recently is combining products with different acid profiles to create an acid profile that is not just citric that is not just malic that is not just whatever the heck is in hibiscus it's it's all of these things kind of at the same time and and when you bring in yeast fermentation you know, you, you, you get other, you get, you get the lactic side of things as well. So like what you have in this product is really compelling acid profile to me. And, you know, you said it's a very gentle ginger at the end. And I think that's, I think that's really fitting for this because why, why have the ginger just kind of blow that really nuanced flavor profile right out of your palate? Yeah. Thank it's you. Really, really good. I, yeah. Cheers. It's, um, it's especially good when it's super hot outside <laughs> mm -hmm. as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, anything uh, anything else special about the breeze? I mean, was this um, was this a recent release? Is this just one of, one of your other best sellers? Yeah. So the way that we usually bring products to market um, 
is we'll brew it for dra limited draft. We'll start in our tap room. Then we'll then we'll bring a couple draft to a restaurant, see how it's see how it's received, and then we'll eventually package it. Um, it, it originally went to market as the beach cruiser, but uh, that mark was taken, so we, we took the breeze. Um, and uh, you know, it's to me it it connects to this. I, I'm originally from the ocean. I grew up on the I'm a Floridian by um, by birth and grew up on the beach in Florida. And it connects to this part of me, which is my love for the ocean. My love for like, you know, warm, super breezy days for, for uh, being on the boat, you know, halyard, what a halyard is, is it's the name of a rope used on a sailboat to lower, lower or raise a sail. Right. And so for me, halyard, why I, I named halyard, you know, after you know, a rope on a sailboat is first of all, it connects to the colonial spice trade kind of this, like historically, but also connects to, my own identity as a person who grew up on the ocean and a lover of water. Um, sometimes people are like, but you're based in Vermont. And I'm like, yeah, but we have, you know, we have a hundred miles of coastline here in Vermont, which is actually more than Connecticut. So don't give me that, you know, like the Lake Champlain is huge and um, there's a pretty thriving sailing community here, but it also connects to who I am and my roots. And, and so the breeze to me is really this homage to, you know, sun, being sunburned, right. And, <laughs> and having salt water on your skin and, um, having a, a cold, refreshing beer after, you know, after being on the water all day. Mm -hmm. I'm, uh, in a, in a few days here, I, I will be out on a boat as well. So, and this is, these are exactly the, the kind of beverages that I think of for, you know, summers out on the water. It's, it's, uh, my, my primary recommendation to folks, you know, listening to this is, is yeah, if, if you're heading down to the beach, get yourself some halyard because this is not, you know, whether it's the breeze or one of these other products, it, it's, it's, it can't be more seasonally appropriate than it is right now with things getting hot in DC here. We went from 70 degree days straight to 90 degree days in one week. So that's how you know that summer's officially here. <laughs> yeah, right, and exactly. this is the sort of stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm craving. Um, and so then, uh, for the mountain aid, the, the last mm -hmm. we're going to sample here, um, Look, this was inspired because of the El Diablo, right? Um, we were making the El Diablo cocktail, and I loved how cassis worked in with ginger beer. And I was like, well, black currants are grown here. I, I know where I can get some black currants. Uh, and so we brewed a ginger beer with black currants, also a gorgeous flavor. It's like red in color. Um, current, talking about like complex acid profiles, right? Current is this super interesting tiny little berry that's crazy high in antioxidants it's it's tart but it's also juicy like a berry um and so when you brew it with the ginger beer you get this really like really unique tart and juicy ginger beer and kind of like the breeze we didn't overdo it with the ginger so you really kind of get the ginger at the end and it leads with the with the, with the currants it is crazy red i mean like you know, we think of hibiscus as being a very bright uh, product. This is just like, it It reminds me, and I, I don't know that I always pull this out of a current product, but I guess maybe the combination of the current with the ginger and the carbonation brings me almost into a pomegranate space here. Hmm. Yeah, that's it's, cool. It's I really can see nice. that and for it, sure. It's, it's it's deep. It's deep on the nose. Like, oh, like, I, I, I love current products because there's just a lot going on and it's you get a lot of bang for your buck a little bit goes a long long way and yeah. you're right it's just like man uh 
so so mountain aid is this is this sort of like the lemonade of the mountains is that the is that the <laughs> idea here yeah you know i um it's a 16 ounce format not a 12 ounce format right we released it as um something different right outside of our, our usual core um a, f- a friend of mine ty williams uh, who i surf with he was the artist who did the can art and we were on a we take these little strike missions out to the main coast to go surfing together. And we were talking about it and I asked him to do a label for us. And there's this sense that, um, I I love the idea of I, when you're doing adventure sports in Vermont, right. There's always this, like this people bring beers with them, right? Like you, you hike the top of one of our mountains here, Mansfield or Camel's up. And there's people sitting on the top of the mountain after a, you know, several hour grueling hike, having a beer, there's people shoving beer in their, you know, in their snowboard jackets as they ride the lift, right? It's like, it's a thing in Vermont. And, I, and it's just like this feeling like, oh yeah, I just, a little bit of mountain aid, right? A little bit of help <laughs> as, a, as whatever this like crazy Vermont thing we're doing. And that was the idea behind it, right? It's also low alcohol. It's still, you know, only four and a half percent alcohol. So it's something that you, you can take with you and not, and not be crushed by it. But it's going to be really refreshing as well. Hmm. Yeah, it is. I I would I would drink this on a mountain. I would drink it on the aforementioned boat. I mean, it's it's really wonderful, and I, I I do like that. You know, one of the things that we're seeing is you're you're referencing not only history, but also the place where you are actually creating these products. You know, you were mentioning the research that your friend was doing. You know about the the ginger beer industry in Vermont pre prohibition. You know you're you're kind of staying close to not only your roots with with the name how you're brewing, but also you know the place where you're operating. And I, I think that's another signal of craft. It's not necessarily uh, yeah. a guarantee of craft because anybody can open up like you know great example city winery. It's like oh. Is this is this wine made in? The, no, this wine's not made in this city. They're just trying to make you think that it's kind of local. I mean, and that's fine. It works. They're profitable, but not necessarily what we would uh, kind of identify as craft or you know as as truly local. Um, you know, it makes me think of uh, some of the guys at Baltimore Spirits Company who who make a Pachuga style smoked apple brandy, and you oh, know when cool. you hear uh, a bunch <laughs> really? of white guys oh. are doing a, a Pachuga. You're (laughs) automatically thinking appropriation. You're like, what do you guys have any business doing Pachuga with? But, you know, they, instead of, instead of uh, a fowl, they use, they hang a a Maryland ham in the still. And instead of other, you know, more exotic ingredients, they're foraging persimmons and black walnuts and pawpaws when they're in season and, and throwing those into the still as well. So suddenly you go from, you know, something that sounds a little, little bit white guy appropriation-y to like, oh my goodness, like you guys really put the work into this. And and instead of feeling like a little bit weird, it's like, wow, because you focused so much on place and because you really sat down with this and made good eye contact with it, which is, which is also a phrase that I tend to use in association with authenticity, because you made such, such intense eye contact with this product, you've got something that goes almost crosses over infinity and and it seems like this is the perhaps the best way to honor that tradition of what pachuga is even though it's not your tradition so i think that's some of the stuff that local can do in an effort to maintain authenticity and in a a way to just you know take your time and 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 do fun projects as well yeah i I love that i think that craft and authenticity also needs to be forward looking too. It's not just like mm-hmm. making the best lager under the Reinske boat, right? It's like, it's like, 
it's also thinking about how do I, as a, as a craftsperson, make this anew, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think that's a really important part of it. It's not just about reliving something that was done several hundred years ago, but it's trying to constantly reinvent and, and, and be a craftsperson in the process. Yeah, I think that poses an interesting question. Uh, it, we we have a, a good a good split on on this show in terms of listenership. A lot of our listeners are just enthusiasts, and on the other hand, a lot of our listeners are actually people who make things. And so, for those those of you who are in that camp listening to this, I'd I'd say that brings up a, an interesting litmus test that perhaps you can run when you're doing product development. You're trying to figure out what you, what you should launch next, or or how you should. Um, continue to, to innovate. And, and if you're looking at a project, I think you can simply ask, is this project something that is self-renewing or self-refreshing? Did it, did it come, did it seem to come to you or are you out there looking for something to try and, you know, to be the next glitter IPA, for example, if, if you're out looking for something, if, if the, if the impetus comes from, from something that seems internal, internal to the project that you're doing, internal to who you are, internal to what the product is, then I would say that's a, that's a good self-refreshing product that, that is a, you know, a really worthy product to, to work on as, you know, what is the future mean for, for this industry. But if it, if it seems like some of the impetus is coming from margins or coming from, from outside somewhere, you know, to, to, to be, uh, you know, not, not to reference the hashtag, but to be, to be like, Oh, me too. I can also make a hazy IPA, you know, for referencing the trend of the past two years, then, you know, maybe, maybe that project is, is you succumbing to, uh, to some market forces instead of, instead of being true to what craft is. So just a little litmus test. I don't, I don't know how you think of that. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, you know, I think like it's hard because we we all got to be in business, and <laughs> otherwise we can be homemakers. And so we have to we do have to walk that line. I think mm-hmm. on the other hand, we can we can focus on process and and people, right, and ingredients, and we can we can still carve new paths and even play around with gimmick, right? It's not there's nothing wrong with playing around with gimmick, but like you said, like if we I love this idea of self-renewing. Is it, can we invent something that can run can run on its own, right? Yeah, and I think that the cocktail space is a great place for gimmick, right? So, like, if you're going to do a gimmick, make it make it a make it a special at the cocktail bar. Make it make it something ridiculous that you're doing with you know with the with the crazy purple of the mountainade. Make it make it, cocktails are in my opinion the perfect place to get people excited and and then all right, great then next week the special is going to be something else. And the fact that you were there on the week that they were running their ridiculous, like crazy special and, and got to experience that, that makes it special. That's, that's a great place to kind of to do some of that and not have it be something that distracts from, from the core, the people, the products, the process. Yeah. So Kenny, this has been a, a really cool tasting. I, again, didn't think that I was going to be uh, tasting tasting all these crazy ginger beers uh, here this morning if you'd asked me about a month ago, but I'm glad that we had the chance to do that. It definitely opened my eyes in terms of what's out there. I mean, like I mentioned, I, I was familiar with dry mead 
uh, but I but I wasn't thinking of ginger beer in this way. So it, it got me really excited to start thinking about you know cocktail applications. I'm excited to put together the featured cocktail, um, you know, with one of the one of the drinks that you feature in your brand materials. I'm I'm gonna play around with that after we get off here. Um, but is there anything else that you want to make sure that you uh, tell our listeners about your products or um, you know your company before we jump into the lightning round? Yeah, thank you for that last little space. Look, we are, you know, I'm trying to, you know, as a team, we are trying to revitalize a forgotten ferment. And um, it's, it's been hard, it's been really fun. And uh, I, I, I want first and foremost, I want Halyard to be approached and drink it first, have it as a product. And then I, for those of you out there who are really, in, you know, who are making cocktails, please send us the cocktails you make. We can add them to our social. Like we'd love to just experiment and play with them ourselves. Credit you when when they come up. Um, so please, my contact will be at the end. So please make sure to to send those our way. We'd love to see them. Absolutely, and we have a lot of we have a lot of creative uh, folks out there who are listening. Uh, a lot a lot of people who do way better in the Instagram space than I do. So I, I always <laughs> rely on our listener base uh, to to take the pretty pictures. And uh, with some of the colors that we have here, these are definitely grammable products. So I'm excited to see what they come up with. And now on to the lightning round. So you had a, a cocktail bar kind of attached pre COVID. Uh, so I, I assume that uh, you're, you're pretty familiar with, with mixed drinks. Uh, what is your favorite cocktail of all time? And if you don't have a favorite, uh, what's something that you've been playing around with more recently? Yeah, I love this question. I've got two answers for you. Um, first answer is during COVID over the last year and a half, I guess I rediscovered the gin martini. My um, my grandmother used to drink them and feed me olives when I was young, right? And look, I'll let you read into why the martini became my COVID beverage <laughs> for all sorts of reasons, you know, but pretty simple, straight up, you know, ounce and a half of beef eater, uh, ounce of Dolan dry, quarter ounce olive brine and two olives stirred, stirred over ice and strained. So that's been my like cocktail over the last year, uh, but my all time favorite cocktail, like I love rum, I love agricole. So my all-time favorite cocktail has got to be the tea punch, agricole, fresh lime juice, and cane syrup. Just amazing. It's perfect. It makes me happy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, my friend uh, Chase Babcock from uh, St. Benevolence would be happy to hear that. I think <laughs> I can see, I actually see a lot of similarities between between your project and his project and, and the way that you guys both uh, kind of uh, approach things. So yeah, the tea punch, if you haven't, you should check out an article called Plato and Aristotle Walk Into a Bar by Dave Wondrich in the Daily Beast. It, it was done uh, a couple years ago. I think we have an episode. I, I liked it so much, I think I did, did an episode on it. Um, so uh, it talks about the differences between the tea punch or the, the similarities and differences between different members of the rum sour family. So we've got the tea punch, we've got the daiquiri, and then we've got the caipirinha. And so it talks about how these three cocktails with all the same ingredients can be viewed as you know, platonically very similar, or if you're taking a bit different approach, you can, you can really zoom in on some of the process aspects that really make the tea punch special. I think to me, the tea punch more than any of those three has like that really special process. It's a very specific way to cut the lime, very specific way to inter integrate the flavor into the actual drink, you know, built in the glass. So I think it's a really, really cool gin sour. Next, what is a seemingly small, this is a new question, 
what's a seemingly small or idiosyncratic occurrence that always makes your day? And the example I'll give here is whenever I see a bunch of little birds kind of ganging up on a big bird, it always makes me smile. It's like one of the it's, it's way, one of those ways in which nature kind of uh, mirrors the things that the stories that we tell about <laughs> our own you know own lives. So I love seeing a bunch of big birds gang up or <laughs> little birds gang up on a big bird. Yeah, <laughs> I love this question. Um, I love unexpectedly catching the moonrise. Mm. Turn a corner and there's just the you, moon, do you like, live? <gasps> like right there, rising. You're like, whoa, look at this planet that's orbiting our planet and it's just it always catches me by surprise and makes me happy do you live at a place where you have like decent vistas sometimes depends on you know it's mountainous so some roads you can catch it and it's always beautiful if you see it kind of rising over the mountains because it helps with the, the the you know perspective and it just makes it look huge and really pretty wow yeah that's a great answer uh cocktail with anyone in the world past or present who would it be where would you go what would you drink just kind of paint us a picture Oh, this is a really hard question. Nobody likes it. <laughs> you know, I, this goes back to my academic days and reading and I, I really love the philosopher, um, Baruch Spinoza. He was a, a philosopher, incredibly important philosopher, arguably one of the most important philosophers since Plato. He lived in the, the Dutch Netherlands and uh yeah <laughs> and eric holds a book up yeah that's awesome <laughs> you know he was is a, a philosopher that lived in the dutch netherlands in the 17th century and i would imagine sitting you know going out to the beach right or maybe a boardwalk overlooking the water and this is pre-cocktail right so we'd probably be sharing a bottle of armagnac right talking about nature intuition time human struggles um, how he's having to hide his work from the authorities, but he's still feeling pressed. You know, he could be he could be killed for some of the work he's doing, and how it's being hidden in bookstores inside other books, and his philosophy is spreading underneath the ground. Right? I, I would love that experience. Yeah, Spinoza is a fascinating guy. The book that I held up is, is actually a, a neuroscience book called Looking for Spinoza, in which uh, uh, contemporary neuroscience kind of walks through different aspects of, of philosophy and how uh, Spinoza's natural philosophy kind of is an interesting way to break down and parse out some of the ways that our brain works, specifically through feelings and emotions. So like it kind of kind of works to dissolve and then rebuild back up that idea of mind-body dualism that was so, so important because uh, Spinoza did have a little bit of uh, overlap with Descartes, obviously the, the original Cartesian dualist. And, and so it's interesting to see how that gets parsed out. I'm not done with it yet, so I don't, I don't know all the answers, but Spinoza is a fascinating guy and I'm definitely going to, uh, to read a little bit more about him uh, next time I get a chance. Awesome. Sounds like a great uh, book. Yeah, I'm excited about it. What is a unusual or controversial belief that you hold in the spirits and cocktail world? <laughs> uh, you know, this might come as blasphemy in uh, Vermont, but look, Hayes Bros, you need to get over yourselves. <laughs> right? like, <laughs> like, I, like, I love a good IPA. Do not get me wrong. But oh, the, the brosphere is just out of control. Like, it's just too much on the it's still the fastest only growing category in craft beer um it still gets insane amounts of hype everywhere and it's just like i get it i get it i'm over it <laughs> <laughs> 
so uh well so so if that that's that's interesting uh i agree yeah it can be a little much i i tend not to go into too many beer aisles anymore just because it's like uh i i, I know it's just gonna be like all right now i have to thumb through all these it, it's almost it, it's exhausting to have to thumb through all the new ipas to be honest uh it's just like I, all right i know that there's a couple i like i've instead of gravitating towards new things to try i've actually found myself gravitating towards things that i already know now because it's like all right i don't have time to try all these so there's that but i, I guess as a follow-up like what's a category that you would love to see like blow up that you maybe that you're not very like hopeful is going to blow up like, <laughs> if you could just make a category blow up what would it be oh man um Oh, that's a great question. The, I love, um, English bitters like bitter, you know, like a, like a classic English bitter, I think is a great beer. It's not going to blow up. <laughs> Breweries have tried. It just, it's not going to happen, but they're great beers. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the e people, people will put ESB on there, right? English special bitter. Yeah. On the can usually. Um, yeah, for me it would be porters. Yeah, uh, it's another great I, one. I think porter is like a it's a fantastic way to take the dark maltiness of a stout, but not necessarily need to have as much sugar in there. So again, it's you know kind of referencing your project. It, it can be a little bit drier and still have some of that depth and complexity. So yeah, I think that's a great question. I think people listening to this, like, what's your answer to that question? What would be one product or category in whatever space? that you are not confident is ever going to be as popular as whatever the current popular trend is. But like the, if, if you could just flip a switch or, you know, a genie would give you a wish and you could make that category blow up, how would the world be a better place in your eyes? I think that's a cool little thought experiment to run, uh, yeah. especially if you, you, you have strong opinions about a category of just being like, Oh my God, more of this. It's super cool. Cause it's like rum, right? Like rum is starting to have its moment kind of like mezcal did right and i'm super torn about it on one hand all of these rum manufacturers right distillers are maybe going to get paid well and going to be able to turn a bottle for what it's worth on the other hand i don't want to like fight for rums i don't want them to have shortages on shelves i don't want to like go through the you know premiumization of rum um that other spirits have gone through so it's like that's like a category that i'm glad is seeing it's it's coming but i'm also like a little nervous about it right i think that's fair i think the one saving grace of if we're going to compare the rum rise to the agave rise i think that you're going to i think that rum has way better potential for community impact and sustainability than agave does just because you're working with something that grows over the course of a single year a couple or a couple months as opposed to something that sits in the ground for you know eight to 12 to 18 years before you harvest it for, you know, depending right. on the species. So I think that there's, That's I think it's point. certainly yeah. something to be nervous about for all the reasons that you <laughs> said, I'm not excited about the premiumization either. Uh, but it, it, it's upon, it's upon us whether we like it or not. But, but yeah, I, I, I think, uh, I think that's a really smart uh, observation. Uh, well, Kenny, this has been a fantastic conversation. I love nerding out with people who are, are willing to, to meet me and, and nerd out in, in the spaces where I like to be talking about Spinoza, talking about <laughs> Peruvian ginger. Can you wrap us up here by telling folks how they can get a hold of how you're brewing products and 
especially if uh, there's any way to do a uh, direct shipment, because I know that that's been a really popular option of home delivery since, since COVID. Yeah. Thanks. So unfortunately we are, well, fortunately or unfortunately we are a uh, craft beer. We are a, a beer on the federal government's eyes. So I cannot be shipping across state lines right now due to distribution contracts and the complexity of it. Um, please reach out to your senators and tell them to you know, disrupt the three-tier system. But um, for the moment, I can't ship it to you. Please reach out to me. You can uh, hit us on Instagram at Hired Brewing or shoot us an email, um, info at HiredBrewing.us. Uh, I see those, so I'm, I'm happy to respond if you're curious about where we're distributed, where you can find us. Um, another great way is to reach out to your local distributor. And say, or or one of your local beer stores, and say, hey, like, wait, I really like some Halyard. How do we get that? And that's usually all it takes to help get product into the market. Nice. And uh, you did mention Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Publix. Uh, do do you have a? Is is are those just kind of a mixed bag in terms of what states you're in? Yeah, that's right. Um, the uh, throughout we're distributed throughout New England, so you can find us in almost all the Whole Foods in New England. Um, and Trader, most of the Trader Joe's in New England as well. Um, there are select total wines, Publix is in North Florida, as well as Whole Foods in North Florida. And then in states that are um, not, uh, are who do not allow chains to proliferate, like Massachusetts and New Jersey, oftentimes you can find, find us at your, um, your local beer store down the street. As a guy from Massachusetts who will be shortly traveling to New Jersey that that pains me but but yes uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah yeah check it out New England folks you should have no problem getting this and everybody else um, certainly expect to uh, as the company continues to grow and scale um, see more and more of these products more available in your area uh, so Kenny thanks once again for being on the podcast thank you so much Eric it's a, it's a real pleasure Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.
This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. Delicious alcoholic ginger beer courtesy of Kenny Richards and Halyard Brewing Company. And a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.